Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. The last time I taught was, um, was it Thanksgiving? We did the prayer in Ephesians 3. There was only four of us here. I think you were here, Mark. Was it the night before Thanksgiving, or was it the, yeah. Yep. But I, that's when I went over the prayer in chapter 3, but I do want to just read that tonight as a reminder of how wonderful that prayer is, and it, just the idea that it's a great prayer to pray for your friends and neighbors and relatives and, and enemies, or to pray for our enemies, and you know, you'll, you'll see that this is a great prayer for everything, every occasion, um, and especially when you don't know what to pray for someone. Because a lot of times we know people need prayer or they give an unspoken. Um, I, I could elaborate on that, but I won't. But, um, you know, it gives us a chance to at least pray something when we don't know what the need is. Um, so anyway, for this reason, I kneel, this starting in 314. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You know, I love that, the idea that we derive our name from God. Just like when we're born into a family, we take our father's name, or it's given to us. Um, my last name's Sawyer. That's my given name. That was my dad's name. My middle name was his middle name. So, you know, it's the same idea here. When we come into the family of God, we're called under his name or by his name. And the body of Christ derives its name from the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, what a concept here of this prayer um, that would be strengthened with all power through his spirit and our inner being that, you know, being rooted and established in love. You know, as Christians, that should be the number one characteristic of our life is that we love. If we don't love, then, th then there's no love of Christ in us. Because if the love of Christ is in us, then we're going to love people. You know, and he goes on. He gives four dimensions. Grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Four dimensions. Is there another dimension that we're not aware of? You know? Well, it's fourth dimension. It's a, four, a, a fourth dimension here. You know, but the idea is God's love is so great, it's immeasurable. There's no way we could measure God's love. And, and that's the concept that Paul is trying to um, 
put across here and you know and to know this love that surpasses knowledge it surpasses knowledge we can't know the depths of god's love it's impossible his love is infinite because he's an infinite being we're a finite being we love in a finite way we understand love in a finite way you know we're not I shouldn't say we're not created to understand love in an infinite sense, but I believe we were created at one time to understand God's love in an infinite sense. But due to the fall, we, we don't understand God's love like that anymore. We know it's infinite, but what is infinite? <laughs> it's far beyond our, our ability to explain or, or discuss it. We just know it's wonderful. You know, God's love is so wonderful. You know, and to be loved by him and to feel that love and to sense his presence in our lives, it's just beyond words. And that last, the doxology there, starting in verse 20, that him is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I mean, I got a great imagination, but God can do way more than I could imagine. You know, there's a lot of things I could think of that I wish I could do and wish, you know, that God would do. But he's able to do more than we can even imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, his power is at work within us. It's his power and his glory that it's at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, that's a wonderful prayer and i'd encourage you to pray it for people um that's usually my go-to when i hear someone has a prayer request that's unspoken um not really sure why people give unspoken prayer requests um if it's that personal take it to someone you're close to um but anyway or just say i need prayer which is fine anyway Chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Um, I'll stop reading right there and discuss that section. Um, that might give us enough to get through the evening, I'm not sure. But we see here a, a shift in, in Paul's writing here. He's going in from a more of a doctrinal standpoint to the practical standpoint. The doctrinal is, is you know, who we are in Christ, the privileges we have, the responsibilities we have, and our importance to God as human beings. And the practical is how we live it out. What's the... What's it look like on a daily basis when we live our life out for Christ? And, and that's what Paul's 
shifting over into here a little bit, and especially in the second half of the, the chapter, he gets, you know, pushes a little harder in that direction. But, you know, he starts out, you know, mentioning again, Paul, that he was a prisoner. Paul's not ashamed to be a prisoner. He calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. Um, you know, he wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't a prisoner of, of any, you know, the Gentiles or the Jews. He was a prisoner for God and for God alone. And he goes, I, then, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is quite a statement. Paul is urging them to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received. And you think about that. Our calling is from God. And if God has called us, how do we live a life worthy of that calling? We can't in ourselves. It's impossible. We have to have the Spirit empowering us and indwelling us, and then still we fail. So, you know, Paul's urging his readers here, you know, live that life that's worthy of the calling. And the, the word here um, for worthy is the same word they use for balance. And it literally means to bring up the other beam of the scale. You know, when we live out our life as Christians, we have to have that balance in our lives. Um, if we've got one up too high, one up, the other up too high, we're not going to live a good life. We need that balance. You know, we need a good balance, even if it was 50-50, of living our life for God and doing the other things that we need to do in life. Not, you know, the sinful things, of course, but you know, the daily chores of living in a house, you know, sweeping, vacuuming, mopping, doing the dishes, those kind of things. And, and we could do those to the glory of God, too. But even if we just spent 50% of our day consciously aware of the presence of God in our lives, that would be transformative. And if we had that kind of balance in our lives, we'd be such different people. I know I would. You know, because I'm still striving to seek that balance in my life. We need it. So when we live that life that's worthy, it means to get that balance that we need. And the calling that we have is a calling that we receive to follow Christ. It's not necessarily a calling to the ministry. That's a separate later calling once you've come into your relationship with Christ. But the calling that he's talking about here is our call to salvation. If you look at Philippians 1.27, a few pages over between um, next book over, actually. Paul writes to the Philippians, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. I, I love the idea he starts out, whatever happens, you know, we can't control everything that happens in our lives. 
So he's saying, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means if your neighbor comes over and tries to get you angry or whatever, whatever happens, we're to try to live out our life in a manner that's worthy of Christ and the gospel. You know, if my, I've got good neighbors for the most part, and, you know, none of my neighbors would come over and try to, try to get me angry, but, you know, how about the person that cuts you off in traffic? I hate that. Drives me nuts. Um, and it, to me, it's just so rude and immature for someone to cut you off. It's so unnecessary, but people still do it. But, yeah, whatever happens, live your life worthy of the calling of Christ. You know, be prepared to be instant and in forgiving and instant and in grace, showing grace and those things. If, if, you know, whatever happens. And it's to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, the gospel includes Christ's death on the cross. Can we live a life worthy of Christ's sacrifice for us? I can't. I can try. I can submit my life to God and ask for his help, and that's the best we can do. You know, because his sacrifice was worth so much more than my life. You know, he was God incarnate in human flesh. But yet he still came to offer himself as a sacrifice so that we could have the good news of salvation. So anyway, and we're to stand firm in one spirit, is in that passage. As we'll get into this a little later. It talks about the, the unity of the body and how important that is. But if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. I love this little passage because it says, it's kind of addressed to men, but it's talking about mankind, not just men. But it just seems to apply to men because we're the ones that waffle, I think, more than women in our faith. Um, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. I love that command of Paul there. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage. That is hard sometimes. We live in a world right now where, you know, there's great pushes for um, the Christian doctrine to be minimized everywhere. I was listening to a podcast by this guy that wrote, you know, two huge volumes on the, the latest move to to push universalism into the church theology. You know, universalism basically means just everyone is eventually going to get to heaven. And I was listening to this, I was thinking, where would the necessity of Christ's sacrifice be if everyone got saved anyway? And they were talking about hell as being a place of 
the fires of hell being a place of refinement instead of torture and punishment, you know, so that you go to hell for a little while if you didn't accept Christ in this life. Your, your life is refined in the hell fires of hell, and then you go to heaven. And it's like, no. We're appointed to live life once, and then we die, and then the judgment. We don't get a second chance. I wish we could. I wish everyone could get a second chance. That's my feelings. But according to God, that's not the way it is. And there's been this huge push to, to push universalism and the teachings of universalism into the church. We need to watch our doctrine carefully um, and, and just watch. Bad doctrine creeps into churches by people who don't know the Bible but read all kinds of Christian books. And they bring that stuff into the discussion of church doctrine or, or church affairs. And they go, well, so-and-so wrote this or such-and-such such person wrote this. Well, no, that's opinion. That's opinion. This is the Bible. This is what we take our, our truth and our doctrine and everything else from. So we just got to watch our doctrine carefully. In verse 2, um, it mentions four graces that are important for the Christian life. Starts out, be completely. See, keep your eye on that word, completely. Completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I love these four graces because they're essential to Christian life. Um, if we didn't have these as part of our character, um, our relationships with each other would be in jeopardy. It's the humility that we need. See, Christ was our perfect example of what it means to be humble and meek. He came to this earth as God in the flesh, sacrificed himself for mankind, his own creation. Jesus created us. He put the breath of life in us, and he chose to die and give up his own breath of life so that we could live. What humility in that. How many of us would die for our, a creation of ours? I mean, I made a lot of stuff in my life. There's nothing I've created that I would die for. I wouldn't care to. I've never made a person. I could never make a person, though. But God just loves, loves us so much. So here, humility is a low-mindedness. And this was originally a derogatory term in the Greek culture because the Greeks didn't value humility. Um, and this became a distinctive Christian virtue. Um, because the the Greeks valued high mindedness, and you know the philosophers and their their you know they'd sit and you know people would just gather by the hundreds around them to listen to these great orators speak, whether they were saying anything that was true or not, who knows? But you know, but that was what, what was valued in the Greek culture, not being humble and having a humility. The next was gentleness. That's a considerateness for others. Um, denotes controlled strength, not weakness. 
And my way of explaining this is to think of how we handle newborns. You don't just grab a newborn by the arm and pick it up and swing it around a couple times. Or when you go take it to bed, you just pick it up and you just throw it in the crib. And No, how do you handle a newborn? Extreme gentleness because they're fragile. Every one of us are fragile in our own way. And that's why we need to be treated with the gentleness and kindness of other believers. You know, when we come in here, we don't know what people are going through. We have no idea. We don't know where they came from an hour ago, what, what kind of dynamics were going on in their family. Um, did they just have this big blow up and a knockdown drag out with their spouse or you know, who's who's hurting, who may have lost somebody in their life or, or you know, has a deep care in their heart that they can't shake. We don't know what people are going through. So our gentleness and our love for each other needs to be evident amongst the body. And to be patient, that's a, having a clemency or reluctance to avenge wrongs. And it can also mean a steadfastness and endurance in suffering. Romans 12, 9 and 10 and 18. Oops, went right by it. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. And then drop down to verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, sometimes you see crazy personality conflicts and different dynamics going on between different people in the body. And, and to me, it just breaks my heart because it just rings of unforgiveness of people in, in their life. You know, and Jesus tells us that if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. And I, I don't know about you, but I need his forgiveness so much more than I need to hold unforgiveness in my life. It may be difficult to forgive, but I need God's forgiveness. Um, and forgiveness isn't easy. I don't think it was ever planned to be easy. When God forgave us, he had to die for our forgiveness. You know, and we're to live that same kind of self-sacrificial love. And it must be sincere love. We've got to to live its faith out like we really mean it. And it, this patience can be expressed in loving forbearance. Colossians 3.18. And some of you will get a kick out of this. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You know, Loving forbearance. Wives are called to submit. And that calls for loving forbearance. 
because husbands aren't easy to love a lot of the times. I can't speak from experience. I've never been a husband, but I've witnessed husbands that can be fairly unlovable sometimes. You know, when you witness someone speak to their wife in a derogatory or, or way or, or in a way that demeans or puts them down, it just breaks my heart because they're taking that treasure that God has given them and demeaning it. Someone who's created in the image of God. And that's why we're to treat everyone with this gentleness and patience. In the last part of that verse, bearing with one another. And this literally means to hold each other up. You know, how many times are we told in the Bible to encourage one another and edify one another, build one another up? This means to hold each other up. You know, we all have to put up with each other's character faults and flaws and idiosyncrasies, but it's knowing that we have our own that causes us to try to forbear with others. If, if I sat here and I said I didn't have any character flaws or idiosyncrasies, um, my dogs would probably tell you the truth. I do have character flaws and idiosyncrasies. <laughs> I don't have a wife, thank, well, I shouldn't say thankfully, but um, it would be someone to tell on me, so... <laughs> But, you know, it's where to forbear with one another, to lift each other up, to, to carry each other's burdens. Galatians, I forget the verse now, but it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, when we bear each other's burdens, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. What more are we called to than that? You know, when I, and I see people that can't, don't even want to be in the same room with other people. It's like, what is wrong with your head? And I see that, and it just breaks my heart. Why, why would someone be that way? It just tells me the true love of God is not in their heart if they can't stand even being in the same room with somebody else. And it's just sad. It should never be that way with Christians. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. He's talking about a oneness that's found only in Christ that binds us as believers together for the main reason that we're bound to Christ individually as believers. We're all bound to Christ. And the fact that I'm bound to Christ should make me just love and want to have peace with other people that are bound to Christ. Because we're alike. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. You know, and I know in human families it doesn't always live out that way. It's difficult. Human families... Who knows? Um, you know, we all have our family issues. and Every family has that one certain person that, you know, say no more. It's, they're all different and, uh, you know, they all need God's love, that's for sure. And the verb here, to keep, suggests it's difficulty. 
and you need a resolute determination to overcome it. You know, if we're going to keep the peace, we've got to work hard at keeping the peace, which means we have to be forgiving, be loving. And it assumed that the unity already exists in Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. Just back a page. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And what he's talking about is the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile here. And as Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles, that barrier is now broken because we're all of the same family. He goes on, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You know, it was Christ who brought us peace with God. And it's Christ that brings us peace with each other if we can submit ourselves to Christ. And that's the key. If we're living in simple submission to Christ, we're going to be able to have peace with people. And, it, and it's not going to be that hard. And the bond of peace... I, I like this phrase because peace is the glue of unity. Um, we'll never have unity if we don't have peace with each other. And it doesn't mean we have to agree with each other. We can agree to disagree. That's perfectly fine. I, I have brothers in Christ that I meet with every Friday morning. We're from all different denominational backgrounds, and we've been meeting for 20 years every Friday morning. at Well, now it's 630 because... Um, Governor's doesn't open till six, but we used to meet at Denny's, you know, at six every Friday morning for Bible study. You know, Baptists, Pentecostals, you name it, a whole mix of, of guys from different Christian backgrounds. And there's times we don't agree on everything, but we're at the point where we can agree to disagree. We don't have to argue or put down somebody's argument. We can just get along and have that unity of a brotherhood, you know, and if we can do that on a Friday morning with different denominational backgrounds within the same denomination, we ought to have a, just such great access to this bond of peace. Colossians um, two nineteen. Um, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. You know, it's Christ that holds everything together. And where to be in that type of life with Christ as our head. Um, 
I just love that whole concept there. Um, and it's the closer I get to Christ, the, the more at peace I feel with other people. And that's it, the key. We have to be close to Christ. Starting in verse 4 through 6, we have three series of triplets. Um, verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, one hope. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verse 6, we see it. The Father is over all, through all, and in all. Um, I'll read those four verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I just love this little passage here. Verse 4 is, talks about one body. There's only one body of Christ worldwide, and we're part of it if we're truly saved. Um, you can't emphasize that enough. There's not like a, Christ, a Catholic body of Christ. There's not a Pentecostal body of Christ. There's not a Baptist body of Christ. There's only one body of Christ, and it crosses all lines, um, dead or alive, or um, Baptist, or Pentecostal, or or American, or, or Chinese. There's only one body of Christ, and it crosses all lines of culture and everything else that we could imagine. There's one spirit, and that, that spirit indwells the body of Christ, and is its soul. I love that thought that the Holy Spirit is the soul of the body of Christ. Um, you know, and apart from the Spirit, the body of Christ can't exist. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. You know, I love that whole idea that, you know, we've been given the spirit to drink. You know, like we breathe air, um, we need air. Air is necessary for life. If we were to stop breathing, then our life would go out of us. Well, if the Holy Spirit were to leave the church, the life would go out of the church because we need the Holy Spirit as a vital part of our, our body. And the Holy Spirit is also the pledge of our inheritance. If you remember in Ephesians 1.14, it talks about you know how we're sealed in, with the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ. You know, And that's such an important concept because we're all sealed and baptized into one Holy Spirit. And that's the only Holy Spirit that's there. And one hope, the hope of sharing Christ's glory at the end of the age. 1 John 3, 2. You know, the idea that we get to share in Christ's glory at the end of the age is just so amazing. I say 1 John 3, 2. Yep. Dear friends, 
Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Um, that's the day I'm looking forward to, when we'll see Christ as he is. You know, the we can try to imagine, you know, from Scripture what he looks like. Um, you know, most pictures I've seen don't portray him very well, I don't think. Um, but we're going to see him as he is in all of his glory when he returns. We don't know when that's going to be. I'm, I'm hoping soon um, for my sake, but for the sake of a lot of people I love, I, I pray that he postpones it another hundred years for, for their sake. You know, but I just long to be with Christ so much and to leave this body of sin and pain and suffering and and this this life that just seems so empty and void at times that um, especially when you look around you now and there's just so much evil in the world it just seems like you know I'm ready to take my ticket out of here you know but I'm here for a purpose verse five. Um, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, another triplet. That first triplet was relating to the Spirit. The second triplet's relating to Christ. The one Lord is Christ. He has to be central and the sole head of his body. Um, Christianity has only one Lord whose claim is absolute. And that's so important. Christ's claim is absolute. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's nothing more absolute than that. That, that eliminates all possibility of universalism or any other way to get to God. You know, Christ is the only way. And if we're not in Christ, we're not going to make it. And that's what I fear for a lot of my friends and relatives, that, you know, they're just not going to make it. One faith, that's our personal commitment to Christ, the Son of God and Savior of men. Our one allegiance has to be to Christ, and our faith has to be in him. It's he that did the work on the cross for our salvation and our forgiveness, and our faith has to be firmly planted in him. And one baptism. Um I believe this is talking about um, water baptism or spirit baptism or, or the combination thereof. But there is only one baptism. And it's our external seal of incorporation into the body of Christ. It's when we figuratively are buried in Christ, buried, the old man is buried and dead, and you're brought to newness of life in Christ when you're raised up out of the waters of baptism. Um, there is a work that goes on there. I don't, I'm a little different than some others in Calvary Chapel where I believe that it's a little, it's a lot deeper than just symbolic. There is a work that happens there. Um, I've seen some people baptized in water and come up speaking in tongues. Obviously, there was just something extra that happened to that person while they were in that water. You know, so 
each individual's baptism is going to be different, and God's going to do a different work in us when we're baptized. But that is our seal. Like if you're Muslim, you can say you believe in Jesus, and the, the Muslims will leave you alone. But once you're baptized in Jesus' name, they know that you have left Islam and your life is on the line. You know, so that baptism to them has a great significance. And then verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is one of those verses that universalists like to use. Um, but you got to remember the context here. Paul is writing to Christians. We do have one God and Father of all. He's Lord of creation. He created everything. He is over all sovereign overall um, and I believe he's sovereign and uses of course he I believe that because it's in the Bible he uses evil people for his purposes you know who was it was it Jeremiah who was lamenting the fact that I think it was Jeremiah was lamenting the fact that God would use a nation more evil than themselves to punish them Lamentations, that, yep. So it was Jeremiah because he wrote Lamentations. He was lamenting, yep. But the idea that, um, I just lost my thought. Yeah, God is sovereign over all because, you know, he used a, a nation that actually had no regard for God to punish his people who did have a regard for God, but it was wavering. And look what he used to get Israel out of the um, bondage in Egypt. He used Pharaoh. Pharaoh had no regard for God at all. Pharaoh, in his mind, was not subjected to God, hadn't submitted to God. But God used him in a powerful way to display his works to his own people. All the while, Pharaoh was hardening his heart, and God was hardening his heart too because Pharaoh had already taken that step. So God can even use evil people for his purposes because he is sovereign over all. Um, I won't get too deep into it, but I believe God's using our the current president to destroy this nation. Um financially and immorally and every which way that he can. Um, because that our president, I don't believe, has any regard for God. Even though he calls himself a Catholic, he doesn't hold to the tenets of the Catholic faith at all. You know, this priest that wanted to forbid him from partaking in communion because, you know, he was pro-abortion. You, you can't have regard for God in your heart and want to see babies killed. It just doesn't work. The two don't aren't working together. That's why I'm so glad we got the project we got going on for Christmas, you know, helping to support the Pregnancy Resource Center. Um, so God is sovereign over all things, and that's, that's a display of his transcendency. 
You know, I like to think when I pray, if I have a, a deep need, I pray to God out there, the transcendent God who's over all. But if I have a, a personal need, I pray to God in here because God also resides in my heart and he's very personal and he wants to hear our prayers. So it's it's just something I do um, to just recognize his transcendence and his imminence. His imminence just means his closeness and God wants to be so close to us. Through all here, God's creative activity is working through all, whether they realize it or not. You know, you don't have to be submitted to God for God to use you as a pawn in his kingdom. You know, and in all, and that's through his eminence. Now, I believe he's, he's not technically in all people. He's in all believers. Um. As far as the unbeliever, though, I, he can work through the unbeliever, but I don't believe he resides in the unbeliever at all like he resides in us. Because if he did, then all would be saved. But anyway. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You know, I like the idea here. Paul speaks to the church, but also to the individual within the church, because he said to each one of us, grace has been given. And this is equipping grace, like in, in three, chapter 3, verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you. You know, that was Paul talking about the grace of God that had been given to him for the sake of the, the Ephesians. Each one of us has been given a portion of grace, and that grace is for us, but also for us to use for the benefit of others. When we forgive, we're demonstrating grace. When we love, we're demonstrating grace to others. Unmerited favor, you know, we're favored by God, so we need to favor others too, especially within the body. Um, and it's apportioned as Christ decides. You know, we don't get to say, well, I want more grace, God. God gives us grace according to our need and according to the purposes of his will. And it's apportioned by Christ. And it's the grace to use our gifts and grace to that is manifested in our gifts. Um, God gives us the gifts of his spirit to use um, for the benefit and edification of the body. And if we're using those gifts to his glory and people are being built up in their faith and they're growing in their faith, then that's what God desires for us as a body, just to be here for each other, to love each other, to point each other to a deeper relationship in Christ. And that, that takes grace. It takes grace to love. It takes grace to do anything that we do as believers. And we need an abundant source of grace, and God is that grace. But he's the one that apportions it out to us individually, and we just look to him and depend on him for that measure of grace that he's promised us. You know, some, some measures are bigger than other measures. You know, some people don't need as much grace, 
I think I tend to need a lot. <laughs> but, you know, it's just who I am. And uh, it's who God is that is amazing. Well, we're going to stop there because I'm not going to go an hour and a half again. I'll let you guys go because we didn't have music tonight. So let's let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much tonight for the grace that you have given us, Lord. We thank you for dying for us on the cross, Lord, and demonstrating your own grace to us, Lord, that you have given to us. And it seems like boundless measure, Lord, but sometimes there's just a limit to it, I think. And you've apportioned it to us as we need it, Lord, but help us to to use the grace that you've given us for the glory of you and for the benefit of others, Lord, that we may bring this gospel message to the, a world that's dying and in need of it desperately right now, Lord God. And Father, you see everything that's going on in our nation and in this world, Lord, and we just wonder how long it's going to be before you return, God. And we just want you to know that we long for that return and we long to see you as you really are, Lord God, to see you full of your glory and your grace, Lord, and to see you and as our merciful, loving, heavenly Father, God. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.